for me, coming back into that world and what we do is massively important. Our heart is always focused on doing the absolute best we can and doing it absolutely right. The things we do are really, really important. And I just think we've just got to not shut up um, and, you know, be really bullshit and be really loud and proud about what we do and how we can help. Hello and welcome to The School of Hard Knocks, a new six-part series brought to you by EG Property Podcasts. I'm Sam McClary and I'll be your host. Over the course of this series, we'll meet people who've lived through some of the highs and lows of this wonderful business of real estate. And through our conversations, we'll dig deep into the skills, the mindsets and the structures you need in place to successfully navigate tricky times. Originally designed as part of EG's Next Generation project, provide a tool for people in real estate who may have only worked during a period of low interest rates and high activity. What follows is a series of conversations that guarantee everyone will find helpful, inspiring and dare I say it, even entertaining. In this second lesson, I'm joined by the wonderful Linda Schiller, the Harworth CEO who wants us to shout louder and prouder about the power of real estate. Linda's story is a fascinating one that takes her from the world of audit into a world of transformative real estate deals and large-scale regeneration. It's hard not to be drawn into Linda's passion for property, and she's not wrong when she describes it as akin to a drug. This conversation is packed with insights and intelligence and tips of how to make it through the tough times and ride the waves well. People, plans, and persistence feature heavily. So, sit back, get your pen and paper ready, because it's time to enrol yourself in the School of Hard Knocks. Listen hard and enjoy, because graduation promises a better grounding to navigate any of the knocks the economy may throw your way. And listen to the end to see who's up next in the Hard Knocks timetable and why their best advice is to never get too comfortable. Embrace the change and flex with it, and those hard knocks just won't be able to land a blow. the School of Hard Knocks, Linda Schiller. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. I'm recovering from a cold like half of the country at the moment, <laughs> but otherwise, fine, thank on, you. On the mend. On and, the mend. Uh, we're in a big podcast studio, so uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that I won't get those jams. Hopefully, well. not contagious. Yeah. Uh, but um, thank you for joining us in in this, this new school that we have here at EG, the School of Hard, Hard Knocks. And I guess I was really, really pleased that you said yes to join us here because I think your career spans so many different parts of this sector. So I know that you will have seen so much and learned so much and have so much to to share with our listeners, particularly those who may be, um, you know, newish to this industry and have only seen... 10 years of free money <laughs> uh, and yes we've had some some shocks over those years but we haven't haven't yet gone quite into recession have, have we so yeah really pleased to have you here so thank you so much and I guess maybe let's start at start at the beginning and give us a little bit of a, a you know how you got into into property and the and the journey to from from BT all the way to Harworth today. Yeah, so thank you ever so much. And I, I am really am delighted to be here. And when I was sort of thinking about some of the things I could talk about that people might find remotely interesting, 
I actually was looking at my the timeline of my career and mapping on various crises, actually. Um, and I suppose if we go back right to the beginning, um, I graduated with a degree in accountancy and finance, and I started as a trainee accountant um, in local government back in 1986. So we were at that point were heading into the start of the Thatcher recession and the recession that took us through into the sort of um, into the early 1990s. Um, and I went into work in the town hall. I went to work for the treasurer. Um, I was on rotation. I fell in love with audit, but found the pace of the public sector really, really too slow. I was going really, really fast and nothing else was. So um, I actually moved into BT. So I stayed in the public sector for a couple of years and then moved into BT. And I used my transferable skill, which back then was audit, to basically sort of get me into BT as an internal auditor. Um, and then sort of began to sort of work my way sort of um, through that business. Um, why was audit an interesting start? Because I'm not a chartered surveyor, as many people who know me sort of know. Um, because it enabled me to really get to understand the organisation. And I've always been insanely curious about how things work, um, you know, where things could be better, you know, are there broken bits, you know, so what can be done? Um, and audit basically enables you to sort of lift all those sort of tiles up and actually sort of look underneath them to see what's there. Um, but it was love, as I've often sort of said to people, that got me into real estate because um, I met my husband um, at BT, worked in a different sort of team in the company. Um, and in 1990, he was, you know, sort of said to me, look, I'm, you know, sort of, I think I'm thinking of moving back to Leeds to sort of take over a family business. Um, my dad's asked me if I want to. He's given me the best part of two years to think about it, but that's the trajectory. Um, so in 1993, we both moved back to Leeds. Um, and I got the job then as a financial controller for Building Services Northeast, and that was my very glamorous entrance <laughs> into into this into this world of real estate, um, which I found even more fascinating because going back to you know what I loved about audit, I actually loved about being in the in in the sort of the real estate part of the company because basically it impacted on every bit of the business's operations um, and you know BT had I think outside of the NHS the biggest real estate portfolio in the UK um, back in the day and you know sort of there was lots to do there was lots to do there was always budget constraints um, you know there was always like a massive backlog of repair and maintenance you think about it, it has everything from um, a seven eight thousand sort of telephone exchange estate then it had offices which we were going through the process of modernizing and building all our work style 2000 buildings I mean I've got to be really old to remember that actually <laughs> but that was like the massive sort of change in actually the way sort of that business works and we used technology to enable the company but it was much more than that we had data centers you know, we built data centers and ran and operated them. We had logistics, you know, sort of warehouses and depots. Um, you know, we had like, you know, repeater stations and satellite stations, you know, sort of for our international networks. So it was an absolutely fascinating company to be part of. And, and for me, moving in, although it was a finance role into it, you know, sort of really sort of started to set my, my mind on fire. And it wasn't long, actually, um, before I moved into an operational role. So I moved to the dark side because I realised that um, I actually enjoyed running the real estate more than actually the accountancy side of it. And that started, you know, uh, the, uh, a long career in real estate for me and BT. I mean, I was with BT for 18 years. 
and I spent 13 of those 18 in real estate and basically did every job, you know, from facilities management to asset management to development to commercial director, strategic director and eventually property director of the company following um, the sale and lease back of the estate to Tell the Real Trillium. What kept you there for so long? Because I, I guess in, in today's world, people don't stay in, in jobs for decades, do they? There's a lot, the people transition a, a lot more. Was it the fact that there was this le- you know, amazing opportunity to learn across a massive estate? Or what was it about BT that kept you there? I mean, it was a hell of a company, you know, sort of, um, and, you know, and, and nurtured its people but all but its talent in particular um really really well i mean i had three bt babies you know i had sort of my three children were all born while i worked at bt and i never for one minute thought about not returning from mat leave you know the maternity leave package was hugely sort of generous even back then actually um but actually what what i had was um the sponsorship and the mentorship of some really remarkable people um you got to remember that when i started this journey sort of in the early 90s i was in my you know sort of um, mid to late 20s so so, and I went, and I went, I went from being sort of a relatively junior manager to a really senior manager very, very quickly. Um, and you can't do that without um, an environment around you. So the people that you work with, the people that you work for, actually, you know, they've got to have your back because you will make mistakes. You will, like, you know, be, I mean, incredibly blunt instrument at times because you've not had the years of experience to finesse how you tackle a, diff- a difficult situation. Um, and there'll always be people around you who basically sit there and wonder why on earth you're there doing that job and, and it's not them. So so for me, you know, it was that whole ecosystem of support, of feeling valued, of being given opportunities. I mean, that was really exciting. So for somebody who is a like voracious learner and, you know, just loves the new, the different, the shiny, you know, sort of that was massively, you know, there in BT as opportunities. And I probably did a different job every 18 months or so or my or the job I was in changed and included something else. So that, you know, that stimulation of me as a, like, intellectually, but also um, as I was developing. Um, and I worked with fantastic people. I really did. And and I think in every business I've ever been in, you know, quite frankly, you turn up to work with a smile on your face because of the people that you work with, not because of the company itself. So actually working with really brilliant people who, you know, sort of you trust yeah, sort of with your life and they'd have you know they'd have it in, in their in their hands um and would always go out their way to sort of help you was massive and and it's when the culture changes that actually you start to think well is this really what i want if if my value system's on the left and the culture's moving towards the right actually do, do i need to do something different yeah yeah so from bt mm-hmm. to the co-op how how did that move take place and 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 um, and what were you what were you learning as you moved through co-op i guess lloyds and yeah. scottish scottish widows as, as well so after 18 years in a company it's really hard to believe um in yourself and that you can actually move and go and do that somewhere else but the the challenge i had i was still really young I was still really ambitious um, and actually there wasn't really anywhere else for me to go. So I was probably top 50 in the company, um, very much in that corporate function sort of um, senior director line. 
Um, and to get into a line of business, so BT had sort of two or three great big divisions. Effectively, what they said to me is like, you know, yeah, we're yeah, really happy to consider you, but you've got to do another five years um, and you're going to have to sort of go and do sort of something abroad and something over here. And I just wasn't up for that. I actually decided I really love real estate. Mm. I really love property. Um, I love the industry. I love the the vibe in the in the industry, and I just wasn't up for it. And so I decided to start to look for something else. Actually, um, and I wasn't looking very long, and the, the co-op the co-op found me, um, and that was amazing because I walk out of one great big business into another like great big business. It co-op back in those days, you know, probably had a fourteen billion turnover. I mean, wow. it's huge, yeah. and it's just massive conglomerate which is all member owned so it's a totally different setup to sort of being in a PLC in many ways um, and I went on to the executive team of the group which is was about 12 of us um, and my responsibilities was um, initially I went in as property director and within six weeks of me joining we merged with the United Co-ops and the chief exec who'd hired me of the group was no longer going to be the chief exec it was Peter Marks who was chief exec of United who we'd merged with so I'm sort of suddenly sitting there we just moved house um, you know kids were really young and I'm thinking like you know I'm gonna lose my house like I'm not gonna be able to pay the mortgage because they're bound to choose their guy not me and I really was absolute in that mode. And I remember being really quite audacious and going, because it was all taking quite a long time. I mean, it took two weeks, but it felt like forever. Um, and I get, went to see Peter and I said, look, I really understand, you know, sort of if it's your guy, not me, I, I get that. Um, but I've only been in the business for six weeks and I'd just like to know sooner rather than later, because quite frankly, I've got other stuff I'd like to do if you don't have a job for me. Um, and he, he called me back pretty soon after that and said, you've got the job. Um, and so I went from going in as property director to running a business that was called Cooperative Estates, which was property, um, land, farming, renewables, energy procurement. Um, and there was quite a, there's 300 million investment portfolio sitting in there as well. Um, and that was brilliant. Yeah. I mean, it was just like, what an amazing business. And a company that actually was at the forefront, I think of, you know, sort of, um, of sustainability, of energy management, of, of thinking about how you create place in its developments. And it was just a brilliant train set, actually. Yeah. Oh, I want to go back to that audacious mo yeah. moment, because I think that's really, it's, that's really quite p powerful what, yeah. what you did there. And um, I want to dig into how how you did it, I, I suppose. What it, was it just this, oh, shit, if I don't, if I don't do something, uh, I can't sit around and, and wait. I've got to have a decision now so I can move on or, or move, move forward. What, what was it inside you that perhaps, um, you know, listeners can take away to, to allow you to mm. say, okay, I'm just going to ring this, ring this yeah. guy up and say, I don't mind what the answer is, but just tell me, tell Sooner me something. Sooner rather than later. Yeah. I think, I think in part, so, so I was almost like on the happy hormones of leaving a company that I'd been with for 18 years that I had a great career in and landing something like equally magnificent. Yeah. So proving to myself I could do it. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, this thing, it looks like it's about to be ripped away from under my feet. Um, and I'm a, anybody who knows me um, well will know I'm a plan A, a plan B and a plan C girl. 
And I just thought, I've just got to have a plan. Look, whether or not any of those plans were ever real or feasible, I mean, who knows? I mean, it's a long time ago, but and probably they weren't and maybe a little bit insane. And I just decided I just had to, I, I think leaving BT after 18 years proved that I could stand on my own two feet as well to me. So maybe I just had that tailwind of a bit of bolshiness and confidence to just ask and to just be, what I found in my career is sometimes that directness and that honesty and that, you know, I wasn't asking for a malicious reason like I wasn't planning to sue them or claim or anything crazy like that it literally was I was sitting there looking at it thinking I've got a really young family I've just left a business that you know I had a great long career in that was a really safe place I could probably have stayed for many years sort of afterwards just doing the same thing to do something new and like whoa I've got to do something and and I think that just drove it out of me because I've never been massively pushy about my position in an organization that's never been me I've applied for the job if I've got the job I've thought great that's the job I want to do and I've never been one of those people that's just been banging on the door going oh promote me promote me or like you know it's that's never been the way for for me it's I've been quite driven and focused and hoped that actually the output and what I achieve has been the thing that's enabled me to move on actually Mm -hmm. I think that's it that's um really great story thank you for sharing and um uh uh, I've I've taken notes on it, so I hope <laughs> <laughs> listeners are too. So, co-op, another really big estate mm. to to look yeah. after, and then you move to Lloyd's. Yeah. And when do you move to Lloyd's? Is that as things are getting a little bit uh, dicey out there? No, because actually, again, looking at my timeline, I was writing down. So actually, the GFC was two thousand and seven, and I moved to the co-op in. 2006 I want to say so I did, was at BT from 1988 until about 2006 um, and I remember vividly driving into work like you know over the M62 sort of glorious hills sun on them looking amazing just listening to the stock market fall and parking the car and running into the office and going straight up to the sort of 12th floor and saying to um, Peter Marks and um, Martin Waits who was our CFO oh my god have you heard what's happening um, and remember at this point um, I got a number of really big things going on I got Noma you know so we got Noma through the board we had agreed to buy uh, to, to fund the development of One Angel Square and actually when all the economics were done for Noma back in the day it was like you know 1.4 1.5 billion sort of GDV of development yeah. and you're watching like that like half by the second almost actually in terms of what's going on in the markets um, but no I mean and, and the, the issues the group had with the bank came after I'd gone actually it was when the bank was trying to buy um, TSB I think that you know sort of that all began to un- unravel um, so yeah well so at the co-op you know I had a big agenda of stuff to do so Noman was one we had the eco town which we'll come back to in like what doesn't quite work out as you planned <laughs> um, story uh, but you know I, I've been there for four and a bit years and it started to feel really the same so, you know, and, and I think that was really interesting for me. I felt I'd done a load of stuff. I was moving it along. I wasn't massively looking for something to do. And one day a headhunter head sort of rang me and said, have you ever thought about going into banking? And I then told them the story that uh, back in 1988 when I joined BT, the people who wouldn't even give me an interview were the Abbey National. So I'd sort of written banking <laughs> off actually for my career. But but actually, yeah, really, yeah the headhunter said, look, you know, 
Lloyd's are um, rebuilding, you know, sort of their real estate lending business um, post crash and the sort of um, the integration of HBOS. Um, they're looking for people who are not necessarily career bankers but understand the, the industry. I'm an accountant by background, so obviously um, you know the numbers um, as well. Um, and I'd sat client side on a lot of sort of banking stuff. Um, would I look at it? Um, and I did, and I got the job. So I woke up sort of, like, you know, not that many months later as the MD of Lloyd's Real Estate Lending Business, the, the good book. So Richard Dakin, who's a very good friend of mine, had the bad book. Um, the good book was about 24 billion when I, I took it on. Um, and, you know, really, um, I remember thinking, why not? And I remember thinking, if I don't do this, I'm going to really regret it. Um, and harking back to my BT um, days when we had a board member who'd run one of the big BT divisions back in the day, a guy called Mike Armitage, who was once talking to a cohort of the people who were coming up through the business. And he was asked a question about, like, you know, how he, you know, what had happened in his career. And, he, and he'd said, and I've, I've told this story often to sort of youngsters when I've talked to them, is every now and again a door would open. And he said, I always went through it. And he said, and sometimes there'd be like a nice sort of gentle staircase and elevation up to the next level. And sometimes there'd be a gaping chasm that you fell down and you had to work out, you know, sort of um, what you were going to do next. But he said, but I always went through the door. And I, and I think I had a bit of mic in me. I was sort of channeled my inner mic and thought, why can't I do banking? Which for all of those listening is really, really hard. <laughs> um, you know, and, and, and the only massive out at any point over any move I've ever made was that one and it's because the learning curve was vertical um, I joined a business at a time when the GFC was over um, we were putting it back together again but it was nowhere near over because you got the regulators working out actually where they were going to take the regulation to you got the Bank of England you know sort of working out exactly what was going on in the sector and what the underlying carnage was that was either still to come or needed to be dealt with you had got the banks actually suddenly finding that real estate lending was more expensive for them, you know, sort of uh, to do. Um, and therefore, were they going to scale it back, stop it? You know, how was it going to work? Um, and all the risk models were being adjusted. And I had like, you know, sort of literally walked out of like the safe as it was then co-op bubble world into um, a vertical learning curve, running one of the biggest real estate lending books in the country. Um, and or everything around me was still shifting and it was really painful um, and every it was every six weeks sometimes it changed not every six months but had I not done it and I really did love it and I really did enjoy it I learned that um, and I like, preferred being uh, client side not advisor side that was the only job I've ever done that's advisor side and whilst I really enjoyed it and I had some brilliant clients some of the real big names in the sector who I love working with I did feel I was living vicariously through them for their schemes and realised actually that that's what I really like doing and had I not done that I wouldn't have got the SWIP job because the SWIP was a part of Lloyd's at the, at the time um, and um, Malcolm Nash had retired and they'd been searching for somebody for quite a number of months um, and one day the HR director ran me up and said actually we think you are a really good fit for this would you consider it and I thought oh yeah it's principal I'm back on client side <laughs> so I left the banking business and went to run the real estate fund management business 
um, which that I door absolutely opened loved. and you walked through. Yeah, I did, and and I absolutely loved it. And you know, so it's really interesting, isn't it? That sometimes you make a move, and you never, you can't predict where you're going to end up. But actually, if you give it your best, and if you don't give up, and you've got to manage yourself when it's feeling really tough, and you've got to rely on those people around you who are your network, your sounding boards. Like my husband, I mean, he must wear earmuffs all the time because when things aren't going great, he just gets the full download before I can sit down and have a bite to eat or a cup of tea. Once I've got it on my chest, I'm fine. And then I sort of move on. But, um, you know, I went through the door um, and it was one of the you know best experiences of my career, actually, was, was running SWEP, even though it ultimately was sold to Aberdeen. And six or seven weeks in, they said, oh, we're selling the business. I'd asked them the question at interview because there'd been a lot of rumours over the last couple of years. And they said, no, 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 no. Um, and then I said to the chief exec, but what do I do? I'm six weeks in. I've got no history. I've got no legacy in the business. He said, pitch him your strategy. And it literally was. So I'd got like, you know, six or seven weeks in the business and then we're into a sale process where as part of the executive team, I'm there having to talk about business that I've been in for a relatively short space of time. Luckily, my colleagues all sort of knew the business pretty well too, but also sort of talked to them about what I thought the art of the possible was and what I was had I been staying and it been staying with Lloyd's, what I would was planning to do with the with my part of the business, um, and I can honestly tell you that was a really great experience as well. So you look back and you think, well, the end of it, you didn't have a job. That's fine, but actually the experience and the growth and the excitement actually of doing something like that was was phenomenal. And the ability for you to do that do that strategy clearly comes from yeah. everything you've experienced yeah. before as well yeah. it does it's yeah. it's all of those jobs that take you to it is yeah to that place. it's that cumulative bit it's like you know I always look back and I think I started as audit and audit was my gateway into BT finance was my gateway into real estate and then every job I've moved into within the real estate sector has taken some of that experience that I've gained in each of those roles on the way um, some of what's part of my sort of long standing skill set and I've been able to deploy it um, often in a different way but but the beauty with all of the jobs is the learning was phenomenal yeah yeah you know, new sectors you know sort of different roles I mean that that's the bit I've really loved and so from SWIP to MAG mm -hmm. to Manchester Airport we're gradually going um, further north yeah. uh, and from there to Town Centre yeah. Securities and then to Harworth where, yes. you, where you are yeah. now um Tell us a, a little bit more, and then we'll, we're going to go into some of the some of the more highlights. And then, because I I am you know drawn to the negative, some of the some of the yeah. uh, failures perhaps yeah. or lessons lessons learned. Tell us about Harworth now, and uh, I guess that door and how um, I don't want to say how comfortable you are there, because I'm I'm sure there's still lots of lots of things that you're you're doing, and and I, I feel like comfort isn't a place that is is uh, where you want to stay if you're yeah. you're a learner. Um, tell us about that story in, in Harworth today. So so um, Harworth today, I, I had decided um, actually um, when I was at TCS to uh, to step down and do because while I was doing the mag jogger, I, t I took on two NEDs. So I went uh, as a non-exec on the Crown Estate, 
on the board of the Crown Estate and I was a non-executive director for Vivid, which is quite a large housing association based in Hampshire. So I had two non-execs um, and I sort of realised that maybe I was coming to a point in my career where I just wanted something different. And if I'm honest with you, I felt that I had, I was just on a wave too late to be chief exec of a PLC because what I should say is as a youngster, that was my ambition. I used to think like, why not me? Why can't I do, I do that? And I'd sort of got to a point where I was thinking, actually, you know, it just feels like it's too late. It just feels like, you know, sort of if I was 10 years younger, you know, sort of, um, and had, or had gone, taken a slightly different decision, maybe at some point in the past, and who knows how that might have worked out, because nobody does. You know, actually, I might have stood a chance of doing it, but where I was looking at actually thinking, what do I really want? Um, and I thought, actually, I'm going to stop what I'm doing and I'm just going to focus on non-execs for a chunk of time. Lots of my really good friends, including some of the headhunters that I've got to know well over the years, said to me, you'll do it for a couple of years and you'll be straight back in in a big PLC job because you're not ready. And they could tell me that, but I couldn't tell myself that. Um, so um, while I and, and you know I'd resigned from TCS on that basis that this is what I'm, I'm going to do, um, and I literally had um, probably four months into it was quite a long notice period and COVID had hit as well. Um, I get a call from a headhunter saying, um, you know, there's this job at Harworth, and I I knew Owen Michelson, my predecessor. Vaguely, I'd met him a couple of times in the past on panels. Um, I knew one or two people who'd worked from Harworth in the past, but I didn't know a massive amount about the business. And I said, no, I said, no, I don't want to do that. I'm going to go plural, like, you know, the my road is set, like my path set, and that's that's not what I'm going to do. And then phoned me again, like, a couple of weeks later and said, are you sure? Because everybody we ask keeps saying, this is Linda. It's got Linda written all over it. And I said, that's because you're looking for somebody to be headquartered in Rotherham. And that is no disrespect whatsoever for, to, to Rotherham, I can tell you now, because I grew up about 12 miles away from, you know, sort of where our head office is today in a Yorkshire pit village. So I know it really well. Um, but I also felt that there was this thing about actually trying to get somebody from another part of the country to come into like the heart of the Yorkshire Coalfields was not going to be an easy an easy ask. So I um, so I you know sort of um, said no again, and then but in the background I started to look a little bit more at Harworth. On like my my internet research sort of went through the roof, and my husband sort of kept saying to me you're going to go for it, aren't you? And I kept saying, no, I don't want to. Because I'd also promised him I'd semi-retire as well. That was part of the, the deal. Anyway, eventually I said to him, oh, I'm just going to go and have a cup of coffee, coffee with them. And of course, the more I looked at this business, the more I was hooked. It's, it is absolutely all of the people who knew me, who'd been saying to the headhunters, you've got to talk to Linda, were of course absolutely right. <laughs> because um, it's it does everything I love. It does large scale, um, really complicated regen in like almost like at the extremes sometimes of like where, where you want to do it. Um, it's got a huge, everything about it is big, like the land bank is enormous. The team is team's very small actually, but the land bank's enormous. The scale of what we develop is enormous. And like I say, it's complex. Um, there's no, there are a few easy wins um, on a day at Harworth, but actually it's also where it's doing it for me. So it's doing it in the heartlands where of like where I grew up, but also sort of areas that are very similar to that, where all the previous industry disappeared as you, we went through the late 80s and the 90s. And the tragedy is, is nobody had a plan as to what was going to come next. 
So we saw these great industries disappear and there wasn't a plan as to what was next. And so we saw decades of economic deprivation of like long-term unemployment running through families of kids who were just like me, like, you know, what, what's, their, what's their way out? Education was mine, what's their way out? So for me, coming back into that world um, and what we do is massively important, but also finding myself in a company where um, my value system was totally aligned to it. You know, Harworth doesn't, we don't get everything right, like many, like many businesses, many individuals, but actually our heart is always focused on, you know, sort of doing the absolute best we can and doing it absolutely right um, and going that extra mile and, you know, sort of the underlying quality of what is delivered or the thinking and the placemaking is, is absolutely there. Um, and that I absolutely love. So I've landed suddenly, like, you know, tail end of my career in reality as chief exec of PLC, which was one of my young, my 18 year old goals, um, doing something I absolutely love. What a, what a brilliant career. Mm. Like, even if you said you wanted, wanted it, didn't know you really wanted it, was, was gonna give up on it and then here he yeah. you are, home. Uh, in, Home, in many yeah. ways yeah. and and you know fixing something that didn't have a plan and of course Linda Taylor has not one not two but three <laughs> plans so, uh, <laughs> so so there, there we go um, thank you for sh- for sharing sharing that journey I guess now let's let's get deeper into the the nitty-gritty and 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 some of the the most reward we've, we've sp- mm. spoken of a, a few of them uh, I suppose but whether there's sort of one standout in your career that's been that most rewarding moment for you and and what made it so I am going to go I'm going to start where I just stopped Uh, I think becoming chief exec of Harworth is literally the most personally rewarding thing um, I have ever done Um, to fulfill your aspiration right so I remember going back like I say thinking why not me why can't I do this and you know and and actually all the way sort of through my career um, having resigned myself to it not happening and then getting the opportunity to come and run this amazing business um, and know I can do it which is actually sort of I didn't know when I went in there but over three years I've worked out how to do it Um, and I've learned a huge amount actually as well again um, you know so actually for me this is like if there's one thing I can tick off and say right that was amazing you know sort of this will have to this will be at the top of the list but each business has had its own thing Um, you know sort of if I go back to BT um, really young sort of cut my teeth on you know the transaction to Telereal Trillium I think at the time it was the biggest real estate transaction in Europe you know 2.4 billion I was part of that team that did that I was half of the management team that stayed in the company um, mobilized it as commercial director when I was pregnant with my third child <laughs> um, I remember having a handover meeting to the entire sort of senior team on the 11th of March um, 2002 and Sam was born on the 12th I was very fit and I was very wow. healthy and I was really well so they weren't forcing me to do it um, but I I was banned from traveling by train to that meeting so they had to come up to Leeds to do it um, but you know but that was an amazing um, experience and um, learning and actually out of that has come um, have well have come some lifelong friends mm. you know um, both from our advisory team but also on the opposite side you know so, so people like Ian Ellis who I'm really close to today you know was on the opposite side of those negotiations um, so yeah so that was pretty up there um, I think 
I think Noma at mm. the co-op um, because uh, and that's like you know sort of um, really cemented like my you know sort of relationship and friendship with Sahar Bernstein for example who I, I had known um, in my BT days because I ran Scotland and the North and obviously Manchester sort of sat on that patch but turned up at the co-op and went to see Howard and you know I, to sound him out about the redevelopment of 20 acres around the co-op HQ um, and only to be met with as like you know anybody who's gone done with said, said words like that to Howard with like you know open arms like you know and a response that says how can we enable this and it was really interesting because for years like Manchester just hadn't poked the co-op the sleeping giant mm. you know of they employ 5,000 people in the city and in the region um, and you know they they left it alone but actually had always really thought and hoped that one day somebody would come forward and actually regenerate that area um, and so working through that with my team, in-house team, with my team of advisors, um, again, some people have become lifelong friends like Bob Dyson, who was the chairman at Jones Lang and did the pitch. Um, Malcolm Smith at Arup, who's now back in, in sort of Melbourne. You know, those those are people who have stuck with me for sort of 20 years, actually, since, since that. You know, sort of um, we had this amazing team that put together a great plan. You know, we took it to the board. We had a design team um, who worked with us on concept stuff, but then um, 3D Read and Jim Webster actually, uh, you know, sort of um, got the commission because they'd worked with us all the way through. And we could have run a competition to find a really fancy architect, but we realized that they got us and they were gonna be capable of working with us to design a building that we would really be proud of and that would scream co-op. And One Angel Square today is still one of the most beautiful things I look at as a building. You know, wherever I go in the world, wherever I go in the country, it's a cracker of a building. And I am hugely proud actually of, of, of that. Um, and I can tell you now, you know, sort of so a, the co-op team who worked on it, regardless of where they are today, yeah. you know, it. I think not uh, not a few months go back goes by without somebody posting a picture on LinkedIn or something of that building because of something that they've seen or someone they've talked to or something that's come up. So, so that that was um, that was huge for me as well. Actually, isn't that one of the the most special things about working in the built environment? In that, you know, you can you can move move jobs, you can move. Mm countries you can move yeah. all over but you'll see the these buildings yeah. exist and remain yeah. don't they and yeah. they're always a part of part of you and there's something um really tangible i, su I suppose yeah. to to them and i think we're getting better so as a as an industry because i think you know legacy is massive in in my mind legacy is i want to be able to look back on whatever I've been involved in and be really proud of it and have my kids and the generations to come to be proud of it. Although I'm be, I have been banned by my youngest son of ever pointing out the co-op building again in passing on a train or however we go past it because he went, oh. I did that. Yeah, yeah. oh, shut up, mum. But, um, <laughs> but, you know, but the reality of it is, is there is this thing about legacy. There is this thing about place. There is this thing about quality. And, and today that's in our vernacular. I think if you went back 20 or 30 years, it was not actually as, pr as prominent in the vernacular and I don't really think we acknowledged I think we understood but we didn't acknowledge as much the social value that comes from creating great place and the impact that you can have on well-being and the quality of people's lives and, and opportunity so you know for me that legacy piece is massively important if you're going to do it do it do it brilliantly yeah well. yeah couldn't agree more um so one of the biggest uh, or most rewarding moments is being where you are now mm -hmm. But to get to where you are now, you had to survive and thrive through some up and down economic 
times. Yeah. So I want to um, go go to some of those because we are. It's looming, isn't it? The R, R word. No one's saying. Well, everyone's saying we're nearly there, but it's going to come. Is no recession is is coming. The market that we're living through now is strange, uh, for, and, and strained, I suppose, yeah. for for a lot of lot of people. And um, as as we said at the top of this discussion, there will be people in this industry who haven't experienced the GFC, yeah. haven't experienced um, uh, the tougher tougher times ec- economically. What are some of the the tougher times that you've had in your your career throughout those economic dips that you think, oh, actually, maybe I made a wrong decision here, but I learned something out of it, or something was going, and or perhaps something was going really badly, but you saw the way out it to turn mm. that. Um, or I might not have agreed with it, but I had to do it. I mean, yeah. so, so if you go back to um, the dot-com crash so I wrote this list it's horrendous actually so you've got I've in my sort of career to date which is making me feel really old I've had the um, Thatcher recession that rolled into the early 90s the dot-com crash 2000 to 2002 we'll come back to that but the GFC as we've talked about Covid and like now we've got wars and Covid and, and actually what's happened on that timeline is instead of them looking like they're every 10 years, they're really sort of compressed. There's so much going on at the moment that, you know, is is causing, you know, um, concern, but also a, an inability for economists to stabilise. I think that's one of the sort yeah. of challenges that we've got. But if I go back to the dot-com crash, which was 2000, 2002, and I was in BT, um, and I was not property director at that point. I was very senior in that team. I was the director in that team, possibly commercial director, actually. I can't remember exactly my role and I remember getting a phone call saying um, we need you in over Christmas and we need you at a hotel um, down at Heathrow um, because we've we you know we've got a top secret thing that we're going to be doing and it was basically the the transaction Um, and what was fascinating about that was a I'm thinking oh god I don't want to get Christmas up this is ridiculous like you know sort of like why are they doing that what's where's the fire but the fire was the company was 30 billion in debt um, and, you know, sort of a sort of woken up one morning and realised it was 30 billion in debt. And there were a list of things and disposals and O2 was one of them, mm. you know, one of the first ones to go. Property um, estate was another, uh, you know, that the company had decided it wanted to do and needed to execute in order to. Um, in order to basically sort of reduce its debt um, because otherwise, like, you know, we were going to be in trouble. And that was quite scary, actually, because I don't think I'd ever been in a business. I mean, BT was like a stalwart of industry, you know, sort of great big monolithic sort of company, really strong balance sheet or not, as the case may be at that point. Um, But we, you know, sort of, and so much as it pained me to think that you do a 30-year sale and leaseback agreement on your estate, you know, with index link kickers in it um, and all that goes with it um, because you'd seen where um, in other sectors people had been doing that and suddenly it was coming back to bite them on the bum because they couldn't grow their profitability um, at the same rate as the kickers were kicking in so their cost base was growing faster than their top line you know you sort of sit there and think well what does this mean for BT and for BT as well in particular um, there were things it had to do from a regulatory perspective like um, allow co-location in its exchanges and linking into its network and the economics of that you know were regulated in terms of how that works in terms of charges to to other operators so there was all sorts of really complicated stuff going on um and it was quite scary because you realize that 
even though you might not, you would have preferred not to have necessarily done that, you know, that if you didn't, and if you didn't get behind the programme and execute it brilliantly well, then actually, you know, sort of, um, there was more at risk than just you not having a job. It was thousands and thousands of people yeah. not having not having rails. So that was, um, and, and that didn't go to plan on from a timeline perspective. It took us a lot longer. It took us about a year. Hmm. Um, there were people you getting married. You weren't in that hotel room Heathrow. No, I, I moved to a hotel. I spent a lot of time in hotels actually around this area <laughs> and over towards um, and over towards Clerkenwell um, because literally I was living down here sort of five days a week and we'd start at 10 most mornings and we'd finish between 10 and 12 at night because the scale of that agreement was enormous so, you know, there was all sorts you've got pensions to think about for the team that went across there was you know what's the lease structure look like there was the diligence on insurance there was it, it was it was massive it was like selling a company basically um and that it was really hard it was hard i got two young children got pregnant with the third during the deal um i say there was babies born there was people getting married because we were at the deal for so long as we went through it um but but and it was it was personally quite tough but it was tough because i felt i was giving more to work than home mm. um but i was exhilarated by the experience i was having and, and that's a really selfish place to get to and I had a lot of like crises of like you know and lots of conversations with my husband who I'd say to him look is this all right because the one line I've always said I'd never cross is if my work damaged my my marriage or my family I wouldn't do it and so there was a lot of testing like I'm married to a very tolerant very patient very kind man incidentally and you know who basically just goes do what makes you happy and and if it looks like it's gonna mess stuff up I'll tell you um but that that need for reassurance actually from him that you know everything was okay and particularly once I was pregnant you can imagine he was worried as well about the hours I was working the time I was away and and all of that stuff so so that that was um when I look back that was personally really challenging so very demanding we were driven to uh, extraordinary deadlines um and actually like I say the whole how do you have any balance at all yeah and what goes actually is your time for you so it was all work or all family Hmm. but there was no time for me to decompress but luckily I had big chunk of mat leave you know sort of uh, coming afterwards <laughs> um which is a different type of decompression i have to say so but, not but it's not it's not a rest it? and i well not with three kids at that point no <laughs> definitely not so so i think that was really hard on me actually and i, I didn't think about it that way at the time because like i say i was absolutely exhilarated by doing what i was doing and being a part of something that's really big and really important but it's tough. I think we've got to remember that it's tough on the people around you, yeah. actually. And do you think that you were able to, to navigate that? One, because it was big and it, it was important. It was yeah. just it was about more than more than just you and your role. It was about lots of people, yeah. lots of people. And that you did have that support in, uh, and honesty from, from someone from your husband saying, yeah. you got this. Yeah. If you don't or if it's damaging, I'm going to I'm going to tell you. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think um, I'm a really straightforward person, so there is probably no point in him, like, you know, sugarcoating it and making it nice or thinking, oh, when can I tell her, when can I tell her? You know, you ha- I have to have that absolute trust that if he wasn't happy, he was going to tell me. Um, because when you're in the thick of what I was doing, um, you can become a little bit tone deaf and like yeah. to everything else that's going on around you. Um, and your powers of telepathy sort of, diminish somewhat so so you do need some you do need people to stand up to you actually 
and to tell you as it is. You do need somebody to say, you know, you're eight months pregnant. Slow you need down. a rest, yeah. slow down. You do need that, but like I say, um, if you met my youngest son, you could see that like he was he's, he's all frenzy today. So obviously there was something going on <laughs> hormonally that's, uh, that influenced that. <laughs> so as much as we need our cheerleaders, we need those people to just yeah. pull us down a little yeah. bit as, as well. So that was um, BT uh, at Co-op as well. There was a tough, tough moment. Co-op... Um, yeah, oh gosh. So um, Gordon Brown, as Prime Minister, decided to have um, to run an Ecotown competition. Um, I had property land sort of farming and the farming um, estate was significant, but also had quite a bit of brownfield in it. And we had a site in Leicestershire, um, which had a former airfield in it. So a couple of hundred acres of like brownfield land in the middle of the farmland. And we decided, because the co-op is famous in its history for building towns, actually, and building model towns and, you know, making sure that the people who worked for the business had, you know, reasonable, sort of safe, healthy places to live, had education, had quality food. It's all part of the ethos. So we thought, what better business to to pitch for an eco-town than the co-op? We've got all the credentials. We had the balance sheet to do it. We do it the right way. Um, and so we basically, our land at Stoughton in Leicestershire, we decided that we'd put forward for a 15,000 ho- um, home settlement. Um, if you look at Leicester, it's a circle and there's a quadrant missing, and it was in there. Hmm. Uh, it would enable us to fix a load of issues on the A46 in terms of transport and connectivity and improvement. Um, we spent nearly a year of our lives actually sort of perfecting this thing. Um, only to be met with um, a political shitstorm, for want of a better description, <laughs> because, um, you know, sort of, it was very obvious as we really got into the guts of it that there were Labour MPs who were not supportive of the policy and they were uber local. Um, there were Conservative MPs who were definitely not, and, and, and in some instances, ministers from that part of the world, who were definitely not supportive of it. Um, what was interesting was the vocal minority was really a minority so you got something like 400,000 people in Leicestershire and um, or, in, or in and around Leicester and actually you know sort of we only had a protest group of like 1500 or so it wasn't much bigger than that and we were we were going to all these public meetings and you know we had security at one meeting because right. the threat of assault to our staff was significant and you literally would have people standing up in the audience and barracking you i mean i remember sort of taking a microphone off one of my planning team in an event and sort of this lady who was incessantly shouting and like being really abusive and i just said to her look you know you can like you know you either stop this um you know sort of and we'll continue or if you don't we're going but we're not taking that i had a member of staff physically assaulted (laughs) In a, at, a, at an event, um, I, one I wasn't at actually, but a member of staff physically assaulted. And, you know, it shows you how um, people can get whipped up into a frenzy, you know, sort of about something like development yeah. if they don't want it, you know, sort of on their doorstep. But what was really profound about it was the, all the people who were the vocal supporters or the silent majority. I remember a doctor actually at one of these events saying, you know, I'm really for this. And the reason I'm really for this is because my children are going to have to leave 
the area that they've grown up in because they can't afford anywhere to buy and there are not enough homes being built of in you know that will you know that even of a type that they would be able to afford to buy and there was a housing shortage and there was all sorts so so that that was brutal i mean mm. it was emotionally brutal you're you want to protect your team you have got the sword of righteousness in your hand because it's all good what you're trying to do um and you have a you know you have a wall um that's hitting you constantly i mean you know we, that's why what you said to you earlier i really love radio i hate telly from those days because <laughs> you go on tv and they would be brutal with you um and you know there was no way that you were ever going to get over a balanced perspective of what you were trying to do we actually had um, an exhibition in market harbour um in a hotel and it's where we were all there um, as a team and we were talking we said to the community come and talk to us about it we'll talk you through what we're doing and a local primary school had been goaded to turn up and walk in and say well, things like where are the gypsies going to be I mean it was absolutely wow. bonkers it yeah. was absolutely bonkers and it was really really unpleasant um, so uh, and, and I'm not really sure what more we could have done because as you can expect we had a plan A, plan B and plan C you know we'd plan really carefully what we were going to do we'd we were very transparent with the consultation material we were very open to you know to all sides um, we felt that we were promoting something that was really of value to um, you know, the local residents to the population um, and you know we put ourselves through like quite a baptism of fire and then of course what happened was um, it as we got through the process you they were gatewaying these things and it became really apparent that what they were only going to do was I think they had an A and a B category was make those A i.e. to go ahead were the ones where there was already a consent and then you're mm. thinking well so you've put us all through this process it's been absolutely grueling and you've now decided that actually you're just going to consent the ones that were already you know the ones that were either had a con or had a consent or in the in the offing that they were going to get yeah. them and that was really really soul destroying actually and you sort of sit back and you think like the time we've invested the money we've invested what we could have been doing otherwise but i suppose do i regret um not uh, you know, ha you know, having a go and failing not at all you know um i learned a lot about myself in that process um that i don't take kindly to politicians who basically sort of u-turn on me or try to stitch me up um i learned i was really tough how are you dealing with that now <laughs> it's quite well it's challenging i think i think for in business it's challenging we yeah. maybe can talk about that but you know sort of but the reality the reality of it is you know i found a voice and i stood on my own two feet and boy did i stamp you know stick in and give it to people but also i was really conscious that throughout this process i had a team that i had to defend and protect at all costs who were in the eye of the storm with me and there is like you know and that was my ultimate my primary concern i had a reputation of a business to protect because we couldn't do anything that was out of kilter with the cope and they were huge believers in what we were doing and very frustrated like as a board in terms of what happened um but i just learned i was really tough in other ways you know i know i'm like pig-headed stubborn and just keep going but actually i learned i was really quite resilient and also when i needed to get up and fight i could, i got up and fought actually and, and i think that's quite you know um that's a lesson you hope you don't have to learn that lesson but actually you know if you can do it and you don't run and you just stand your ground you know you you tend to feel um much better in yourself in the end actually yeah it's it 
it, it sounds to to me that actually that is a really good lesson yeah. to learn to learn and i hope that people you know now are, are learning things things like that from today's situation what i take from listening to your story is um it's not just the 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 toughness and the mm. resilience it's actually care as well yeah. actually you really care about the people that you work yeah. with um the places that you create the communities that that you're working in and that um you know sort of fighting for for them is is what what drives you yeah. what what you've taken out of of these you know ups and downs that there's there's been yeah and you often have a really well-heeled well-funded well-educated minority that mm. fight a lot of these things that actually are good for the wider population and for society and that is to me is often a bit like a red rug to a bull you know i i you know find myself going out my way to try to make the arguments that are so compelling but you do actually realize that there is a point when it doesn't matter what you do or what you say nobody's going to listen yeah um, and at that point you either have to regroup and try a different tack or accept that actually you know what move on to something that uh, that you can succeed at that you know sort of you can use all your force for good and everything you're trying to do to deliver um because you know sort of otherwise you will just basically sort of bury yourself in a pit um, yeah. of angst, I think, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, has anything happened to that bit of land since? I think, um, and I was going to check this actually, been prepped for this, but I've, I didn't have time. I think they got Quite an allocation for, I think they ultimately got an allocation for about three and a half thousand homes, actually. I think there was an allocation, but it wasn't for 15,000. And maybe it was the size that scared people, but actually this was like a whole new settlement with many schools and district centres and everything in it. And, you know, we were encouraged for that scale and that ambition, you know, sort of to bring them forward. And I think schemes like Northstow are about 10,000. I mean, they're significant, you know, they're really chunky. So it wasn't out of kilter with some of the bigger schemes that were in train and actually did go through and get the support so but they did get an allocation which you know hopefully somebody is delivering yeah yeah three and a half is better than none is none at all that's right yeah. probably do need the fifteen thousand. <laughs> yeah well if you look at like where we are today with housing i mean you know the argument is we haven't been building enough for decades yeah um and you know that is literally about land supply um and it's about planning and it's about, particularly with Resi, I think the local planning system has been totally weaponized. Yeah. And so it's really challenging for, you know, for businesses like ours, for house builders, you know, anybody in our sector to try to sort of get schemes through, even though they might seem really logical, be really compelling, you know, everybody knows it's the right thing to do. You know, it's, it's probably tougher, I think, than I've ever known it to get mm. schemes through planning. Mm. I'm going to zoom forward to a little bit of crystal ball gazing mm -hmm. for the, the future. Um, and then we're going to come back and we're going to round up. Um, I'm going to let you marinate on it for a little little bit. Um, some lessons that um, you would like to share as a teacher in the School okay. of Hard Knocks for our, for our, for our listeners. But um, where are we going in real estate? Oh, gosh. So if my crystal ball works, I could be a rich woman at the end of this. <laughs> but um, I think one of the challenges is I don't think anybody quite knows. I think there are some the macro is um, dominant in everything that is happening here. And it's not UK macro. It's not even Europe macro. It's global macro. And there are some real seismic and structural shifts, I think, happening that have yet to play out. So we've seen it on energy. 
I think it's going to come on food, um, you know, and actually sort of we're not self-sufficient in food, let alone energy in the UK, should we ever need to be. And you've got to look at the supply chains and the reliability, you know, sort of um, of those um, when things go go wrong and go badly wrong. You know, we could have an oil shock again, you know, sort of if things don't play out sort of well, you know, um, in, in the Middle East, that's always something else that, you know, sort of is, is looming in the background. Um, you've got big economies like China slowing down. You know, they don't have, I mean, they're still growing faster than we are, but actually they're slowing down and they don't necessarily um, have the funding, you know, sort of that they need to do some of the things they, they want to do. Um, and that's before you get into sort of who's friends with who and like, you know, who's supporting who and who's funding who and like, you know, who might want to fight who, you know. So so I think that macro is massively challenging. And I think there are some hangovers still in some economies in Western Europe and the West, you know, from the GFC West of still sort of winding its way through. So it's not just about quantitative tightening. It's about, you know, sort of how realistic are you know, LTVs in other parts of Europe, you know, and actually um, how affordable, therefore, is debt when it's suddenly much more expensive than it has been in the last in the last decade. And I think some of that pain is still going to wash through. Um, I think inflation will come down. I think it's going to come down more slowly than people thought, but I think it will. And it's it's on the right trajectory, but it is proving to be really sticky. And in the UK, you know, we can't be tarred with the same brush as Europe and the US because actually we've got a really tight labour supply, really tight skills supply. And if you wanted to believe anything the ONS was saying at all, you know, today, the, you know, um, I was reading just before I came over here, you know, they're saying actually we've got lower unemployment than we actually thought we had potentially based on their, their new form of survey. But actually we've got low unemployment, really low. Um, we've got over half a million people who can't work because they're waiting for something to happen with them, to them from the NHS. Um, and so we've got a big chunk of the labour force that basically is inactive but could be active if we could sort of get them the treatment that they need. So actually what does that say to you? It feels like wage inflation is going to be sticky, yeah, sort of looking forward as well because we've got a skill shortage um, across many, many sectors. I think for and that's good for real estate because mm. that means you've got, you know, sort of employers and occupiers who basically want space. Um, and you've got people who basically sort of are going to have to continue to invest to grow. Where, where it's really sticky for real estate, I think, is where interest rates go to. Mm. Because obviously our, our market adjusted. Actually, I, I would say when I'm saying I think there's some hangovers from the GFC in other parts of Europe um, when it comes to LTVs. I think in the UK, we corrected really, really quickly. Um, and actually, I think that's a, it was really painful, but I think that's a good thing um, uh, because I think actually having corrected quickly, you know, sort of the wall of pain in, in some real estate sectors has, has been taken um, and the yields moved out as quickly as the interest rates sort of move, moved up. I think, you know, we know that there are some of our sectors where we've probably still got some real, like, you know, sort of, um, I think, sort of hard knocks to come. And I think office, you know, being the one everybody's talking about, I don't think we're out of the woods on retail necessarily either and I think that's going to sort of prove quite challenging as people have to refinance actually in in, in both of those in both of those sectors um, but I think the big thing actually for our sector is the und what's the underlying level of interest going to be interest mm. rate going to be in our economy if we roll forward to 25 um, and I'm saying this on the basis that I'm assuming 24 is going to feel much like 23. It's going to feel like we're walking in treacle and everything's really slow, but it's happening. Um, but when we get to 2025, we know that interest rates are not going to go back to zero. 
And if your underlying rate settles at 1% to 2% and you've got a couple of percent of inflation in your economy, your nominal rate's suddenly 3 to 4 which means that the yield compression that's going to come is not going to be as seismic as the yield shift out. Mm. Um, and I think that's start, yeah, so, so we've got this whole like new paradigm um, and it probably is more like it was 20 years ago, if I'm honest with you. So there's a lot of people still around that have lived this. It's like deals do get done, investors do transact, occupiers do take space. It's just like, you know, sort of, um, it, it's different, basically. Yeah. It's a, and, and, you know, there'll be some who don't survive that. I mean, we're seeing a lot of pressure at the moment on construction. Mm. Um, you know, sort of that is uh, is feeling, I think, if you're in that sector, a bit hairy at the moment, um, right through supply chains. Um, and, you know, again, you know, sort of the cost of finance is, an, is impacting that. Um, but for every subby that ends up not being paid, you know, for longer than they can withstand it. A lot of them just disappear and don't come back into, we've seen it actually since the GFC, they disappear and they don't come back, they, they, they do something else. So I think we're not out of the woods. I'm not quite as gloomy as you um, in terms of, I don't think it's gonna be a recession actually. I think it's gonna be just stagnation, just bumping along, yeah. um, added around like, you know, sort of very low growth. Um, and, you know, and, and I'd sort of take that rather than a really evil prolonged recession actually um, but it does mean like I say that for us you know in, in, in our sector investors may hold off for longer um, you know sort of some of the sectors valuation adjustments may well have bottomed and you know you might get a little bit of improvement but it doesn't feel like it's going to be that wholesale sort of hockey stick correction that we've all seen uh, and you've just got to look at this look at the stock market you know look at everybody's trading at a discount virtually and you know that's saying that you've got you know investors in our equities you know are not willing to come over the precipice yet in any volumes um, and you've still got um, a lot of our funds you know uh, have got redemption requirements so so we've got a lot going on the other side of it which is a bit more glass half full than that um, is that because of I think what's happened globally with supply chains with security uncertainty onshoring and and industries establishing themselves you know in country and remember we are a g7 nation we are a rich economy compared to much of the world um i think is actually likely to increase mm. because we'll want that energy security we will want you know, the security of supply chain um and that means that manufacturing in the UK over time is actually sort of likely to, to move up. And for us as a as a as the creators of places for people to live and to work, you know, as an industry, I think that's massively important. And I was asked a question um last week at a dinner I was at, um, as to what I would ask the government for if they were if they were sitting in front of me, whichever colour it is. Mm -hmm. And I actually said I would like them to think about businesses like mine. Um, businesses uh, and, and our sector, you know, who basically invest come hell or high water in the UK, particularly the UK domicile businesses. Um, we invest through cycles, whether we've got leveling up or whatever you want to call it, like, you know, next time round. Um, and we are the ones that basically plough our balance sheets into the regions and into sort of cities um, around the UK. 
Um, and but we're also the the part of that we're also the sector that doesn't really get massive benefit from some of the capital allowances and things that have been you know sort of um, proffered um, in in the latest autumn statement. So I think uh, but we are wealth creators because actually it's not just about what we invest; it's about the places that we create. Because if we do it really really well. We actually create a place where businesses want to be. There's that halo effect and they come in and they co-locate and they cluster. Um, but also we are a rich source of occupiers. We're a rich source of investors. You know, we are a massive part of the UK balance sheet. And our industry employs directly or indirectly one in 12 people in the UK. So we are massive and we are really significant. And I think the challenge is, is that if, if you've still got people in politics that believe the greedy developer moniker we're never gonna you know, be recognized for the value as an industry that you know sort of that we create and we bring so my you know sort of ask of government is you know sort of is basically to to work with us and to actually listen to us and to understand that you know when every it all goes wrong elsewhere we're probably the ones that keep going and and I think that's massively important because the public sector is not going to have any money yeah, as we see week yeah. after week, week after, after week. week. And therefore, and actually, quite frankly, for every pound of public sector money spent, as long as they spend it wisely, you will get many multiples of private sector investment. But what the private sector needs is like not that flip-flopping and change. They need some a reasonable amount of certainty within a tolerance. You know, we all have to take risk into account. Um, and, you know, sort of, it's great if you can give longevity. So investment zones being 10 years, not five, is probably a, you know, a great signal that government locally and centrally are behind investment zones. So, you know, okay, not a lot of money, but actually, you know, sort of it, it's a sign. And I think government have to start joining up, uh, particularly with big infrastructure, you know, sort of um, in, investment. They've got to start joining up pots of money that are not about one year or five year bidding rounds. They're about 10 years or 20 years, because if you're in my world, you know, we have sites that we're in for 30 years mm. before we finish. I mean, Waverley and the Advanced Manufacturing Park is coming towards the end now of its development in the next couple of years will will have finished. And, you know, but well, I think we're about year 27 at the moment. Wow. Yeah, yeah so, so real regeneration. And I think they need to also think that, you know, real regeneration isn't just about town and city centres. You need places where you can create new large-scale communities, um, where businesses can scale up and so they don't have to go and do it in Poland or Mexico or anywhere else in the world. And the government needs to be thinking about incentivising them to do that and to stay. So so say my glass half full bit is there is a lot for us to get right. Um, and, you know, we are transformational as a sector today. That's one of the reasons I've always loved being being in this sector. The things we do are really, really important. And I just think we've just got to not shut up um, and, you know, be really bolshy and be really loud and proud about what we do and how we can help the government that comes in to deliver a growth agenda. Um, and I just think we should never be shy about that, actually. I love hearing you say that um, because I couldn't agree more. And this is an industry that does have that amazing opportunity, mm. doesn't it? And ability to create places, yeah. to create wealth create yeah. ha happiness dare yeah. i dare i say it and and safety for for people and the the minute that our government whatever color they are can hear that yeah then um i think you know the the world is their oyster not just real estate's yeah. oyster but that there's so much that we can deliver back into the economy if they just yeah. 
Um, so I probably went sold. totally off piste on that one. I know. <laughs> I, I don't care. I liked it. I liked it. And I think, and I, actually, I think from that comes perhaps one of yeah. the one of the lessons for yeah. the for the audience, which is, you know, whatever happens, here is an industry that can always invest. Yeah. It might not be in the same yeah. same way, but we can always give something back and, yeah. and do something in some, some we way. We can av- invest. We can adapt. We're hugely innovative. I, I mean, if I look at like, you know, the things I love about, let's say, it's not just what we create and what we do and the legacy we leave. It's the innovation. It's our ability to adapt. It's our ability to respond. We're massively important in de- in the decarbonisation story, for example. And you know, actually, as an industry, we're still thinking our way through that and and starting you know to implement um, alongside every everybody else. But you know, I look at this sector and it's a sector that I, you know I once described it's like property heroin. It's like you know it's like a love drug actually. So because you you realise that We're there not, are so um, many suggesting that people should take heroin. No, I'm not. No, but it's it's like you realise there are so many things you can do. There are so many things you can be. There are so many ways you can enter into it. Um, and actually, you know. If you think about it today, you know, I, one of my best friends, um, her daughter was a geographer and she was saying, oh, Jess doesn't know what, know, um, know what she wants to do when she finishes. And I, and I said, well, what about town planning? Because actually, it, it's amazing. You know, if you think about it, I'm, so here's me saying, actually, town planning is great. We've got a massive shortage, so we need more of them. But the other side of it is, is that is all about the built environment. It's all about sustainable development. It's all about, you know, decarbonisation. It's all about doing, you know, if you, if you look at it as a subject today, it's radically different to what it was 30, 40 years ago. And it's an amazing, you know, sort of almost science in its own right. So for me, I, I look and I think actually, you know, look at my career. I've done finance jobs, fund management jobs, banking jobs, asset management jobs. You know, actually, literally as a sector, I can't think of where else you get that breath. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Um, so let's round round up with. Uh, I'm going to um, promote you to professor, Professor Linda Schiller in the School of Hard Knocks. So there's our pupils are looking at the world and thinking, okay, um, am I glass half full or glass half empty? What are some of the maybe three, two or three key um, bits of armour, I suppose, that they could wear or arsenal that they could use to help get them through a tough time? So I would say a number of things. I would say always go through the door and always have a plan A, plan B and plan C. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, but generally go through the door because if you, you know, until you do you actually don't know what you're going to find on the other side. But then you do have to, you know, if, if it's plan A and it's all like sunny uplands, that's great. If it's plan B or plan C, you know, you need to make sure that you're sort of working out how you are, how, how your previous experience is best equipped to sort of deal with whatever situation you find yourselves in. But don't forget there's people around you, your mentors, your sponsors, your sounding boards, because they are massively invaluable. So the other thing I would say that what gets you through really, really hard times is having people around you that you love and trust. Um, and they've got you back and they will listen to you at three in the morning after 15 glasses of wine ranting because the world's unjust um, or coming home and bursting into tears because you're so frustrated you you can't hit somebody. You know, so so those are those are like, you know, that, you know, go through the door, have that ambition, have that curiosity, but make sure that you've actually got some sort of resilience behind. Like, don't just do you know, blindly on the other side, flail around. You've got, you know, some some methods of dealing with the situations that you might find in front of you have your cohorts of besties and family around you use them 
Um, they genuinely always want to help. Um, never assume that nobody wants to hear you moan or nobody wants to hear your tales of woe. Because to be honest, they want to help, they'll care about you. And I think the other side of that is actually make sure you're kind and you care about them and other people. Because, you know, sort of, I never found not being kind as, or, or being kind being a negative, you know, not being kind is a negative. But people who are kind tend to draw other people to them. Um, and that support and whatever they need when they need it is, is, is always given. So I'd say, I would say be kind. I would also say to, to sort of um, people who are going to go through some of what we're seeing in the cycle for the first time, you know, you're not alone because actually I'm seeing stuff for the first time in a really long career as, as are you as we were talking earlier, you know, and we're all sort of thinking, well, yeah, we might have a bag of tools that's a bit bigger than, you know, than, um, than the younger people in our industry to play with. But, you know, some of this is actually sort of quite intimidating, even for seasoned you know, sort of um, people in the industry. So you're not going through it on your own and you're not going through some of it for the first time on your own either because that that's that's actually sort of, um, those are the others around you. But I, I just think it comes down to, you know, sort of try and pick your battles as well um, because if you, when things are really challenging, there's a tendency to fight everything. That's really exhausting. So try and pick the things that are going to move the dial and that are going to make a difference. And it might not always be a monetary difference or a return. It might actually be an engagement or a, like, you know, sort of, or just actually getting your stakeholders in the right place. You know, so I try and pick the battles that are actually really important um, and conserve your energy. I think the other big thing as well, when you go through periods of real stress, is you've got to look after yourself. So I said earlier, you know, when I when we were doing the BT deal and I was very pregnant that, you know, sort of um, probably not the most sensible sort of, um, you know, sort of work life balance I've ever had. Um, I think I'm a lot older and wiser now and I managed to pace myself and recognize the signs in myself much better. But it's taken me like 30 years to do it. Um, I think actually, to be honest, younger people are much more aware mm. um, than I was at their age of, of this stuff because we talk about it it's more openly talked about it's more it's in curriculums it's you know sort of people are much much more aware so you do need to make sure that you're looking after yourself because when the going gets tough you know you do need that energy and that resilience but you also you know sort of need to be in the right frame of mind and not anxious and not massively stressed all the time because you'll never ever give your best if you're in that state superb advice so pick your battles make sure it's worth mm. worthwhile yeah. go through the door yeah uh, and be kind to others and to, you, and to and yourself fantastic yeah. linda thank you so much for thank joining you. us in the school of hard so there you have it lesson two at the school of hard knocks completed i hope you've enjoyed the learnings as much as i have i love listening to linda's journey and her story of achievement Linda's done so much. What impresses me most is the humility she's held onto. That commitment to be kind and to value the support you have around you. She knows the importance that has played in her success and sees how valuable it really is. And that is a fine life lesson. But school is not out just yet. Two lessons done, four to go. And coming up on the next episode of the School of Hard Knots, is a woman who played a transformational role in the establishment of London as one of the greatest real estate playgrounds in the world. A woman who, for over four decades, 
is plays an integral role in some of our most iconic developments. If you haven't met JLL's Katie Kopeck, you will likely have walked through one of the places she's helped create. For all across London, there's a little bit of Katie everywhere. All of that sort of stuff that you don't, you, you know, that backstory of watching it happen is what, when it does happen, makes, makes me do what I do. You know, that was absolutely amazing. And I still, it still takes my breath away when I go up to the, around, walk around the Olympics. It still is something that I feel, oh, you know, there's a bit of, bit of me in here. See you next time as the bell rings for the School of Hard Knocks.